So if you've got a Bible, we're in John 8 tonight. Uh, we're going to recap a little bit from the earlier part of this text, and then we'll be focusing on chapter 8, verse 31 through 36 in just a little while. Um, last time we checked in with John, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the story the encounter between Jesus, the religious leaders, and the adulterous woman, uh, the woman who was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus. Really, it was a set-up scenario. Of course, um, they may have had this woman uh, kind of had their eye on this woman, ready to, 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 uh, to use her as an opportunity to try to trap Jesus in that, that famous encounter between the two um, crowds um, there on the Temple Mount. Uh, the story centered around uh, the Temple Mount, um, this so-called light of the world. Um, the, the temple um, from Old Testament tradition was, uh, was a very beautiful, glorious uh, uh, piece of architecture. It was glistening. Um, it was overlaid um, with gold. Um, Herod the Great came in and made it even more beautiful, expanded it, um, and made it more of a, uh, of a temple like the other religions of the world had. Um, and uh, its reputation as the light of the world was only strengthened and only enhanced. Um, and the story concludes, though, with Jesus announcing that he, not the temple, uh, that he, not Judaism, that he, not the religious leaders and their, their, their ideas and, and, and their um, decisions they were making, but Jesus announced at the end of that, um, that first section, in verse number 12, he announced that he was, in fact, the light of the world, and, and, and John's message to us through the story is really multi-layered, um, so I want to kind of break that down just a little bit. Uh, the temple, again, was supposed to be the light of the world, leading people to God, but it wasn't really leading anyone to God, but a few select people that were allowed to get in and allowed to experience things, but even they um, weren't, uh, were really putting on more than they actually were experiencing. Uh, Judaism was supposed to be a light leading people to God, but rather it was more so shutting people out. Um, showing people how flawed they were and showing people um, how disqualified they actually were. The religious leaders were supposed to be a light that led the people, but they were doing more to turn people away than they were bringing people towards God. And, and if you get the picture, um, the, this temple, this religion, this, the, this group of leaders, they were no lights at all. And, and, and here you have this woman led up the stairway, the southern steps, into, um, up to the Temple Mount um, as dawn was breaking. Uh, you have this woman who comes from a very dark place, is led to an even darker place, surrounded by this dark cloud um, that's very negative um, and, and, and very judgmental um, crowd of people. Um, and, and to be honest, if you just kind of come off of this story and you look at what's going on in the big picture, the world wasn't getting any brighter um, and people weren't getting any better. And that really was the situation that was surrounded Judaism, that surrounded um, the, the temple and the religious scene. Um, they claimed that they were making the world a better place, a brighter place, and they were helping people improve their standard and quality of living, but that wasn't happening at all. Uh, again, the world wasn't getting any brighter. It was darker than ever. And as this woman was led up this stairway to be judged, and hopefully they, they had in mind to kill her, um, as they were prone to bring sacrifices up the temple stairs, they brought this woman up the stairs with the intention of stoning her. Of course, Jesus came to her rescue that day. The religion that should have been there to rescue her was about to kill her. But Jesus shined a light of hope and of salvation. Um, and if you remember back to John 1, John has really been uh, centering his story around Jesus being this light that was shining into this dark place, to this dark, uh, dark situations that so many found themselves in. John began his gospel around this idea of Jesus being light. 
Um, he calls back to Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, right? In the beginning was God, uh, and, and how in Genesis God said, let there be light, and there was light, and that initial commandment for light to come into darkness really spawned and sparked all of creation after that. But if you'll remember back in John 1, John says that in Him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. That Jesus' life, so when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he's literally saying that his existence, his coming to earth, his dwelling among us, his example, his life, his sacrifice, everything about Jesus, everything that he embodied and and exemplified, Jesus is the light of men. And the example, and the way John describes Jesus as coming into the world, even though not everybody accepted him, even though not everybody believed in him, and even though not everyone would go on to believe or trust in him, John says the light shined into darkness, and the darkness could not prevent or overwhelm or stop it from doing its job. And just think about this. Think about all the things that Jesus and Christianity has impacted the world. Think about all the things, all the impact that Christianity has had on our world. And again, I talk about this all the time, but I think it needs to be brought up. The idea of loving your neighbor, where does that come from? It comes from Christianity, right? The idea that women are not commodities, right? The ancient world, every religion sanctioned that women were to be used by men. Women were treated and traded like cattle in the ancient world, and every religion defended that stance. But Christianity showed up, and Paul said, men, you're Wives are not your property. They are your equal in God's eyes. Christianity showed up, and in a world where children were, were, were left to die and abandoned, in a world that in, in ancient Rome, if you didn't have a son, your daughters were abandoned, and you could wait until your children were in their teenage years before you made them an inheritance, made them actually a part of your family. In ancient Roman customs, you would adopt your child when they were a teenager, as in you made them officially a part of your family, but you had a 15-year trial run to decide if they were worthy of your name. Maybe you don't know this, but Augustus Caesar was not Julius's natural son. He was his adopted son because Julius deemed his own natural-born children unworthy of the mantle Caesar. So he adopted his nephew into his family because he showed himself worthy of the title and the throne. See, we think about all the things that Christianity has had, all the impact that it's had on our world, and we take for granted, don't we? We take for granted the way Christianity has changed everything. Things that we think are just normal human nature. They are not normal at all, but they are radical and they are different. And they, own, they fly in the face of every custom and everything that is in our flesh. Christianity has had a fundamental impact on our world that is immeasurable. And we take it for granted. The reason why generosity is a virtue. The reason why meekness and humility are virtues. In the ancient world, might made right. But because of Christianity, we think of humility as something that's of a strength. We think of sacrifice as noble. We think of generosity as kind, right? But in the ancient world, if you called someone kind or gentle, right, that was an offense. If you called someone humble, they were weak. If you called someone generous, they didn't realize what they were losing or letting go of. But we have redefined these these things as virtues. Why are they virtues? Because Jesus changed everything. Christianity changed our world and continues to change our world. And we like to think and sometimes we wonder, have we lost our grip? Have we lost impact? Some things about Christianity have become so normalized that we forget just how much it changes every day. 
John says, that light came into darkness and that light overwhelmed every ounce of darkness. One of the oldest prophecies that gets attached to Christmas is from Isaiah. And Isaiah says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So again, this theme of light is so, so central to our Christmas message. John the Baptist, his dad, Zechariah, when he uh, witnessed the, pro- the, the annunciation of Elizabeth having John and then Mary to be uh, uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit to have Jesus, John uh, prophesied after all those events went down and after all those miracles took place. And John said this in chapter 1 of Luke, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So John or Zechariah equated the Messiah as if the sunrise was coming to earth in a body, right? That as just as the light breaks dawn and fills the sky, Zechariah said, This is what it's going to be like when Messiah walks onto the scene. It's going to be like the sunrise was put into a body. That the darkness that is completely is swallowed by the new dawn. Zechariah said, To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Keep that idea in mind. Guide our feet. So here's the thing about Christianity that we, we get kind of numb to. Again, we take it for granted, but what if we considered every time that we mention the name of Jesus, every time we open God's Word, every time we sing out in worship, every time we come to church, every time we evoke the name in daily conversations, every time we pray, what if we envision that? And what if we realize that it has the power of the sun dawning and breaking into the darkness? What if that was how we understood Christianity when we, under, when we practice it, when we apply the truths of God's Word, when we welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives, that means it makes a pretty radical difference, right? Darkness goes away, light comes. That should be the attitude and the posture we have when we evoke the name of Jesus, when we worship the name of Jesus, when we pray to Jesus and do things in the name of Jesus. We should be welcoming the sun into the world of darkness. Of course, there's the scene when the angels announce the birth of Jesus outside of Bethlehem. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And, and literally the best way to describe this is if, as if the sky was ripped open. Because, you know, the spiritual world, we don't know how all that works, right? Is it above? Is it, you know, just some, is it, is it some spiritual realm that is alongside ours that we can't really understand? But the, the way that Luke describes this and the way the language portrays it, it's like the sky was ripped open and heaven and earth got real close. Maybe you've had those moments when you feel like, you know, if there was a heaven, it's right there. But maybe when somebody got saved, whenever somebody passed away, and you, you know, the, the way the emotions of the moment and the feeling of the moment and the way the Spirit was moving, you could just feel like it was like heaven's door was right there. Luke says, the closest heaven has ever been to earth was the night that Jesus stepped out of one into the other. And remember, from a thousand miles away, in Babylon or in Persia, the wise men saw the light. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. We studied the stars, Herod. We have been 
mapping out this astro, you know, astrologi- astrologically, right? I can't, I can't speak. Astrologists, right? We've been mapping all this out, and we have been paying attention to this one star, and it's been moving in, and it's bright as it's ever been, and we can see it right in the sky, and we followed it here, and this is undoubtedly the sign that there has been a king born in your midst, and we're here to see him because we've never, we've looked at the stars for a long time. We've never seen a star this bright. So it's no wonder that tradition began, became to string up Christmas lights because Christmas is all about Jesus as the light of the world, the light of life. Perhaps the most fitting alternative name or title for Jesus is indeed light of the world. But more specifically, and we'll hit this even harder in a minute, Jesus' light isn't just for decoration. It's about illumination. And what I mean by that is Jesus is not just light because it's pretty. It's not just light because, wow, look at that tree. Wow, look at those houses. Look at those decorations. Look at how pretty that is. Look at the, you know, how thematic that is. Jesus' light is about illumination, as in opening our eyes, guiding our steps, directing our hearts, explaining and guiding us in every single day. One thing that we see Jesus doing throughout the book of John is Jesus is always going into situations where brokenness and darkness have been accepted. And if you read the whole book, and we've studied so far, I think we can kind of piece this together, that you always find Jesus going into situations, going into circumstances where people have accepted, hey, it's just the way it is. Things break. Things are dark around here. Things don't go the way we want them to go or the way they used to go. We have accepted defeat. We've accepted brokenness. We've accepted darkness. And I think that somebody here tonight, I think that every one of us can relate to this a little bit. There are some areas of your life that you've accepted it's going to break and it's going to be broken and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm not judging you. I'm not trying to say or be critical of you. I'm just trying to speak into that area of your life right now. If there's an area of your life where you've accepted brokenness and you've accepted defeat and you've accepted darkness, I want to talk to you right now. Not because I have light to shine, but because I believe that Jesus does. And I believe if he is the God that he claims to be, and if all those verses about Christmas being a time of light coming into darkness, like the sun rising every morning, I think there's something we can get tonight. Don't you? And I hope that you want it, and I hope that you'll receive just a little bit. Jesus goes into these situations and says, Hey, y'all, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to settle for this. He showed up to a wedding that had given up on having the best time. Because weddings are all about having a good time and enjoying each other and, and celebrating life and celebrating the promise of something brand new. But this wedding had given up on having a good time because they ran out of stuff, right? They ran out of the supplies. And once they ran out, there was no buying any. Didn't have the money, didn't have a store to go to, and didn't have the time to prepare. They had accepted that they were just going to have a bad time. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of churches, there's a lot of scenarios in our lives. We just accept this is just going to be bad. It's just going to be a hard time. It's just going to be a difficult time. It's just going to be a bad time. He showed up to a teacher who had accepted there were, things, there were some things they would never figure out. He came to a man named Nicodemus who was hired and employed and expected to find a way into the kingdom of God for all the people. And Nicodemus and his people had decided there wasn't going to be a way to figure this out. It was going to be a mystery forever. There's no way we can know how to enter the kingdom of God. There's no way to know how to get to God. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're a master of Israel and you've given up. Come on, there are things in your life you've accepted that you won't ever know. 
and you can't know, and it's not for you to know. And maybe that's true, but what if it isn't? Jesus showed up to a woman at the well who had accepted her life would go on unfulfilled and she would go from man to man, man to man, hoping that one day she would strike gold and one day she'd find somebody that would love her for who she was. But she accepted that there was nobody out there that would love her for who she was and that it was just going to be the same story over and over again. He told her, he said, lady, it doesn't have to keep going this way. See, some of us, we accept the fact that people are going to mistreat us and, and, uh, and abuse us. And there are people in broken relationships, people that move from brokenness to brokenness, and they just think that's just how it's going to be. And you've got kids and you've got grandkids that are like that, don't you? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there right now. I don't know. He showed up to a man who was at a fountain hoping for a miracle and said, how about stepping out of this line? You've been coming to this well, every, this, this fountain, every single year for the last 30 years, and it's never changed your life. Are you going to keep showing up to the same dead religious system and never expect anything different? Don't you realize there's a better way out there? And if there is a better way, wouldn't you like to come with me and find it? See, some of us, we sit in church week after week after week after week. And the Holy Spirit is just trying to break into our hearts, but we just sit there with our shields up. And the Word of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God moves every single day, but we're just sitting there thinking, no, 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 no. It's just not going to happen. And I don't know why that's happening for you, but it happens, doesn't it? But Jesus showed up to a man just like me and you, and he said, listen, buddy, you can get out of that line. I know you've been told that that line's where everybody in your family gets and everybody in your situation gets, but I promise you there's a better way. He showed up to people that were all about material things and thought that this life is just about chasing after the next dollar and the next material thing and the next accomplishment. He pointed out the Spirit of God would provide for them far more than what our flesh may chase after. And they thought, man, all life is about the next sandwich, the next paycheck, the next event. And some of us, we live in that world, don't we? It's all about, well, I've got to get this and get this, this milestone, that milestone. When I have this, I'll make that. When I accomplish this, I'll sell this and buy that. It's all about buy, buy, get, get, accomplish, accomplish, and gain, gain. And we're never fulfilled. He told a woman caught in adultery that she did not have to remain condemned, that she could be free. That she didn't have to accept that judgment and condemnation was God's posture towards her, that God actually loved her, and she could grab a hold of that, and it would change her life. Because God's gift of salvation was for everyone, including her. That's the gospel, and the hope that we've seen in all these scenarios, that's the gospel. So why do we need good news? Because we're all too familiar with bad news, like the wedding party, like the religious leader, like the woman at the well, like the man at the pool, like the hungry 5,000, this sinful woman. The bad news had gotten pretty heavy, but the good news could set them free. And it can set you free. See, the bad news was a result of sin. And yeah, the wages of sin is death. And I'm not trying to, to, to polish that or downplay that. Sin will always equal death. But the good news is, sin doesn't have to win. Because yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So I can talk about, we can talk about the sin and death all you want to, but why would we ignore the good news in the free gift? Have we accepted death and defeat in some ways? I think we have. Like those at Cana, we just accept there's no joy to be found. Like Nicodemus, we've accepted there's no truth that we can learn. 
Like the woman at the well, we've accepted that we'll never find peace or contentment. Like the man who lost his son or the man at the pool, we've accepted there's no hope. Maybe like that sinful woman, we've accepted, we've believed there isn't enough mercy and grace in heaven to save us. But the promise of Christmas and the promise of Jesus, the light of the world, is there is joy, there is truth, there is peace, there is hope, and there is grace. And there's never a situation or season in your life when you should ever be accepted with, there's no joy for me in this. There's no peace, there's no hope, there's no truth, there's no grace. Because there is. The gift of life means that all those things can be found and can be possessed. But there's a key distinction that makes Jesus, that Jesus makes in this proclamation that he, when he says he's a light. There's something that's very important that we've got to talk about tonight. And it might make you uncomfortable for just a little bit, but I think it's going to make us uncomfortable in a way that will lead to a good place, lead to a better place. Verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he qualifies it. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus is not saying that, that his light isn't seen and can't be felt by everybody, whether you believe in him or not. His light is going to be felt and has been felt by everybody, whether you believe or trust or follow him or not. But Jesus said, if you want the full effect of my light, if you want to be changed by the light of the world, he qualifies it and says, whoever follows me, it's going to realize what the light can do. Again, the emphasis is that Jesus isn't just a nightlight. He isn't just a decorative light on a tree. And I, like, I keep a, night, a light on at night because I'm a coward and I can't sleep in the darkness. And I've got, I love Christmas trees and I love all the lights that we've got going on in this church and I hope, I've seen yours and I, lo- I love seeing people's displays. But Jesus is not just a nightlight, and he's not just a decoration. He is a celestial being, just like a star. They're both always in motion. And he's in motion, so he says to you and me, you've got to be in motion too. And sometimes taking that first step is difficult because it, 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 it forces you to deal with things. It forces you to, to admit things. It forces you to, to, to address things. But Jesus doesn't stand still. He moves forward. He makes progress. He makes a difference. Because light, by nature, leads. Right? They call it the speed of light because light travels, right? Light does not stay still. Light moves throughout the whole universe. Light continues every little millisecond of its existence. It moves forward. See, we'll see him say as much later on in John 9 and John 11 about how he's here to make an impact. The addition of light means that things can change. And sometimes light blinds us. Sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable. But it always makes things better. If you look down in verse number 31, there's a lot of talking in between there. I encourage you to read it. But really, the, 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 the meat of this text is verse 31 through 36. And in, ver- in 31 and 32, Jesus says to the Jews who believed him. So he's got some people that are saying, well, hey, we like the light, Jesus. I mean, we, we love what you're saying, and we want to put our faith in you. And he says, listen, y'all, if y'all want to put your faith in me, I've got to make this very clear to you. That I'm not just a certificate. I'm not just a light on your, on your nightstand. That I'm more than that because I want you to get this. 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So he says, hey guys, and this is, you think, Jesus, why wouldn't you just say welcome into the club? I'm glad you're here. You know, first time visitor, give him a good, you know, give him a gift. He makes it very, you know, he kind of goes right to the personal side of things, but he, he felt it was necessary. He says, if you abide in my word, as in, hey guys, I hope y'all aren't just here to believe and stand back and say, well, that's right. Because I know I love having great services, and I'm glad you, are, you, know, you enjoy the experience, and you sing, and you're moved by it. But I want y'all to remain with me. I want y'all to abide with me. I want y'all to stay with me. I want y'all to follow me. I want y'all to make sure that where I go, you go. And if I jump across a, a, a gap that you don't think is possible, you trust me enough to make a way, because you want to keep in step with the light. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, here's what Jesus does in this moment. He kind of insults them. Hey, y'all, thank you for believing in me, but here's, here's some things that y'all have got going on in your heart that I don't want to kind of you know, expose, but y'all got to admit, there's some bondage in your hearts. And believing in me is great, and believing in me is free, and salvation is free. Hey, you're in, but there's some bondage in your hearts. And yeah, you can believe in me, and you can remain in bondage, but why would you want to? I'm not going to judge you or condemn you or say you can't, can't believe in me, but y'all, I think there's something better than just believing. I think it's following me. There's a light that's shining into your life, and I want you to take that step. I want you to follow me as a disciple. And he says to them, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you stay with me, if you follow me, you are my true disciple. And there is going to be truth that comes into your heart, and it's going to set you free. Now, we'll talk about what it's going to set us free from. But abiding, first, abiding speaks of active fellowship. Keyword, active. Abiding is, 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 a, is a present tense word. There's no past tense, right? You don't abide, that's not a word. You abide, as in, I'm alive, and I'm living, I'm abiding, I'm staying, I'm active one of the tr most tragic words, two of the most tragic words that we use in church, church worlds and in and, and Christianity is lapsed or inactive. Lapsed Christian or inactive member. Now, I know things get in the way and life comes at people fast and I don't know what's going on in everybody's life, but here's the thing. There should be no lapsed. And there doesn't have to be. There doesn't have to be lapsed or inactive believers. And, and honestly, there shouldn't be. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you're in active fellowship with me, you're a disciple. And this is one thing that is very important about us living out our faith, because people need to see this. People need to see what it looks like to actively fellowship, actively abide in God. Because here's the thing, dormant faith is dead faith. And dead faith is useless faith. See how I connected the dots? Faith that does not abide is faith that is not active, so that means it's dormant. And dormant is something that you have inside your cabinet that you haven't touched since last Christmas that you're going to look at and think, I think I can use this in a pie this year. It's not out of date. It never runs out of date. That's dormant. And I don't know what it might do to you, but here's the thing about dormant faith. Dormant faith is dead. And dead faith is no faith. At all. And I'm not trying to judge you when I say that. My point is, it's not doing anything. 
See, when people get offense, people get defensive to me and say, well, you know what, I believe, I, I, put my, I got saved a long time ago, but it hasn't done a thing for me in decades. Listen, I, I'm not trying to say you didn't get saved. I don't really care what happened 30 years ago. I don't care what happened 20 years ago. I don't care what happened yesterday. I want to know what's going on right now. Is your faith alive? Is it active? Well, well no, it's not. Well, who cares what happened back then? God's not going to get to heaven and say, you know what, when you got up in front of the church and you said you got saved, you had got saved a long time before that. God's not going to get offended just because you got your, your, your dates mixed up. He just wants you to be alive. Right? And listen, I, I, I am astutely a certain way theologically, right? I believe in eternal security. I'll go on that all night long if you want me to. But I don't care. People in real life situations don't care about theology. They care about life. And I care about people being active and people being well. We need to quit trying to build theological bridges to people and start building real bridges to people and start talking to people about their faith. And if somebody's faith is dormant and somebody's faith is dead, we need to talk to them about how they can become alive again. Right? You know, when Luke's writing that story of the prodigal son, and, and the prodigal son had been in the house, and people have written books and had debated about, was the prodigal son, was he saved, was he backslid, did he lose his salvation? Luke does not care about that stuff in that story. Luke's just trying to tell us, listen, he was in the house, he left the house, he was doing no good in the pig pen, but when he came back, what does the father say? He was dead. Well, was he dead before he left, or was he dead when he was still there, or did he die again? Luke does not try to explain all that because that's not important. Luke tells us, Jesus tells us, he was dead and he walked in the Father's house and he got back up. He came back to life. So I care about people being alive. And that's what we should care about. Dormant faith has turned off the light and retreated to darkness. This has happened to you before, hasn't it? Don't hold on to something that didn't change your life just because of tradition. If you've got to start over, if you need to start fresh, we need to start fresh. We need to start over. See, light is a goalpost. That's where we want to get. It's where we want to be. It's how we want to do it. When you see a light in a far-off distance, if you're traveling, if you're coming up from the country, you're going to a city, going to a destination, that light is where you want to be, right? That light is how you, how you want to live. That light is where you want to be focused on and where you want to your destination to be. We aspire and strive and press towards the light. We abide in Him, or if we abide in Him, we will become like Him. But if we're not abiding, our faith is dying. If we're not abiding, our faith is dying. Listen, the light does not judge us, it does not condemn us, but it does encourage us, it does challenge us. Don't mistake light for judgment. And some people can come at you and they can be judgy and they shouldn't do that. But here's me saying this as the Word says it. The light is not judgmental, but don't also misread light as padding. Because light does make it uncomfortable. Light gets in our face and says, you shouldn't be okay with that. You, you shouldn't just sit there and say that's going to have to be a thing. That's something you have to deal with. You can get over this. Light can lead you out of it. If we're truly His disciples, we will follow the light and the light will free us. That's the key, word, key part of verse 32. We'll make you free. The assumption is we're not free and maybe you think well free me from what whatever you need freeing from think about it just think right now what's something you wish you could get free from 
And I'm not trying to come to you with a verse that says it's wrong, and you don't, have to, you don't have to admit that it's a sin or it's some sort of bad thing. What is something in your life that you would admit, I wish I could get free of it? I don't care if it's something that you've, never thought, that you've ever thought about or been told God was angry at you about or God was against, or maybe you never even thought about bringing it to God. What's something about you that you would love to be freed from? And don't let, well, I don't know if God can, or I don't know if God cares, stop you from thinking about it. I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it for the next few minutes. What's something you wish you could break free from? What's an area you wish you had light shining into and offering you a way out? Just something. Listen, there may, be, there may not be a verse condemning it. There may not be anything that in you that feels wrong about it. But you would just admit that it's something you wish you could get free from. It might be a habit. It might be an addiction, an attitude, an emotion. And I know we don't want to talk about it. But if we're being honest, maybe you would say this. I don't want to talk about it, but if I'm being honest, I'd love to be free from this habit. I'd love to get free from this attitude. I'd love to get free from that emotion. And I don't know if God can free me, and I don't know if there's even an opportunity out there, but if there is a way for me to be free, I want to get free. And verse 32 says, I can get free from this. I think I want to get free from this. And I'm not going to give you a prayer that's going to give you magically freedom. But Jesus deals with all sorts of people that needed freedom. The sinful woman, her habit had become a lifestyle, but Jesus had her free. The religious leaders who had developed such an awful attitude, really, they were a bunch of Scrooges and Grinches. They were critical and bitter of everybody. And listen, so many professing believers are stricken with this today. And maybe we'd be far more evangelical if we believed and trusted our own good news. Hello? Christians, we've got a bad case of the same emotions we see the world stricken with and by, and yet we don't seek freedom for them. Why not? We're exempt because we prayed a prayer one time? That's not the way it should be. We should not be enslaved. We should be free. Galatians 5 says that we should, that freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Think about all the emotions that rise up this time of year. Think about all the worst parts of us that come out this season. And we're the ones with Christmas lights on. We're the ones singing the songs. If we're singing about Jesus being the light and Savior of the world, we ought to at least be benefiting from Him. Amen? And this isn't to judge. This is to nudge. To cause us to think, why am I not abiding in Him? Why am I not walking in freedom? Again, if we're being honest, there's something we'd love to have freedom from, isn't there? And all we ought to do if Jesus is light and he can lead me out of darkness and set me free, all we got to do is say, I want that. I accept him as a way to be free. And again, I, I don't know what you've got in your life that is binding. I don't know what you've got in your heart that deep down you know you shouldn't have. And it might not be a sin. It probably isn't a sin. But there's something in everybody's heart that they want to be free from. What if Jesus, I know it's crazy, what if Jesus can actually free you from it? 
What if His light is that strong? And I know you've seen it do up, you've seen it be strong enough for others and you don't think it's strong enough for you and somebody has told you there's a reason why it'll never be strong enough for you, but I'm just trying to say, what if it might be? Would you be willing to confess that tonight? God, I see light all around me this season. I want to be freed. I want to find my way out of darkness. I want to stay out of darkness. I want this darkness out of me. Verse 34, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Jesus says, maybe if we're honest, we should be honest with ourselves about what we might be enslaved to, and maybe it is something sinful. It's something of this world. And back in verse 33, the Jews tried to say that they weren't enslaved to anything, which as a people, they were literally enslaved to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, but spiritually speaking, they were all enslaved to something. And there's part of me, there's part of you that wants to deny it or even justify our bondage. It's just a little thing. It's just part of me. I can control it if I need to. Jesus says, if you're His, you want better and you can do better. 35, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That's a promise, isn't it? It's a promise. Jesus says the reference to the house is when you come to the Father and you sit on His lap as His kid and you say, Daddy, I want to be free from this, He shines His light into your heart and He says, Son, daughter, we're going to do everything we can to find you freedom. And sometimes there's a way to find help in the world. There's doctors, there's people, there's friends, there's churches. But sometimes all you need is Jesus. And he uses all those other things, right? But however he does it, his light can work. Do you want to be free indeed? Follow the light. Walk in it. Abide in Jesus. Again, if you remember the story of the wise men, the light brought them to Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't just say that's nice and buy a t-shirt and go home. The story goes that the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to a rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because that's what good news does. It causes us to be joyful. And they knew they were getting to the end of the tunnel. They were finding freedom. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Because the light had freed them from the old way. They worshipped Jesus, they abided in Jesus, they saw in Him freedom and they reached for it and they received it and they left different people. They left change illuminated, eyes opened and hearts set free. And you can too. Do you believe that? Who the sun sets free will be free indeed. A star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide with thy perfect light.
Would you pray that prayer? Would you say to the Father in heaven, I want that freedom. And I believe that Christmas's greatest gift to me this year could just be the freedom I need the most. Grace is going to come play for us. We're going to have a moment of invitation. If you want to come and ask God for some kind of freedom, I don't know what it might be, and it might be some awful sin that has haunted you. It might be some bondage. It might be an emotion. It might be an attitude. It might be an addiction. It might be something you haven't dealt with in months, but you worry about it coming back every once in a while. If you want the freedom that Jesus promised, if you want the light of God to lead you and guide you and direct you and keep you, I believe you can receive that freedom tonight. And I don't promise you it's going to get better tomorrow. I don't promise you it's always going to go away. But I do promise you the light will be bright enough, the light will be powerful enough to always guide you. I hope you believe that tonight. And I believe if you trust in Jesus, you can receive. Maybe the first dose of guiding from that perfect light tonight.